Marvin Gardner in his novel, The Flight of Peter Fromm, depicts a detailed and quite accurate picture of a modern-day preacher's. As he writes, To be a minister today in the typical church of a prosperous suburb, one must be as skilled as a politician in the rhetoric of ambiguity, indirectness, and double talk. He must talk plain language, though in such a way that no one listener can take offense. He may attack racism, but it must be done obliquely so that no one in the congregation imagines, imagines that he is referring to him. He may attack business ethics, but it must be done in such a manner that no businessman who listens will think he is implicated. Today's preacher can indeed use all doctrinal phrases, but always so cunningly and so that conservative listeners will go one way and liberal listeners another. In brief, he must learn to preach without saying anything at all. Brothers and sisters, sadly, our times that we live in is the times that we heard in 2 Timothy in chapter 4. A time in the Christian history of the church, but time that is not unusual to church history. A time that might seem to be heightened in which there is a plethora of preachers who merely tickle the ears and preach what people want to hear. Many, I'm sure, we could confess, we've heard sermons that were basically preaching without saying anything at all. David Helm, in his book on preaching, talks about a inebriated preacher. And that doesn't mean a preacher who's drinking and drunk on the stage, but rather a preacher who, like a drunk uses a light post for support, uses the scripture to support whatever ideology he desires to teach. And so he is an inebriated preacher. He, he leans on the scripture for support, but he does not take his ideas from the scriptures. Brothers, this is the, brothers and sisters, this is the day we live in. These are the challenges that we face when we are bombarded constantly with so-called proclaimers of the gospel, preachers of the good news of Christ, but yet we are delivered nothing more than waterless springs or mist driven by a storm. What are we to do and how are we to address false teaching among us? Thanks be to God. He has in His Word addressed such challenges. He has confronted false teachers in the past, and He calls us today to do the same. Our responsibility is to point out those who are teaching false so that our brothers and sisters are not pulled away and drawn astray, and so that we might exhort those who teach error to teach what is true again, to teach what is right. And so to that end, Peter has taken up the task to write to a congregation faced with these challenges. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has written to encourage the saints to stand firm in the faith against the prevailing winds of false teaching. And so this morning, as we think about false teachers again, for yet the third Sunday, as we, we think about the false teaching around us from the moral 
from the moral relativism to the, the sort of softer pragmatism that we even find among ourselves, there has, we see, arisen difficulty and false teaching. And so from this own congregation that Peter writes has arisen, a group of, of Christians, or so-called Christians, who sought to unsettle the souls of the congregation by drawing them away from the truth. And so Peter writes to correct the errors that they were teaching by pointing them to the certainty of their faith in Jesus Christ. To point them, as Jude says, the once for all delivered to the saints. The, the faith that has once for all been delivered. A, a settled truth. And he also seeks to expose the foolishness of the false teachers. The, the sort of silliness of their teaching. By reminding the congregation that such error, that such false teaching, if, if it is flirted with, if it is believed, leads to destruction. And we've considered over the, the past few weeks really the heart of their false teaching centered around licentious living. Uh, that is a, a sort of a freedom to live however you want to live without any consequences for your actions. That God isn't concerned with holiness, but rather just obedience. And friends, that's simply not true. Because the second coming of Christ is true. That Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And therefore we must pay attention. We must stay alert. And as we've seen, each of these are closely connected to the problem at hand. Without judgment, one does not necessarily need to pursue holiness, do they? And without the coming of Christ, there is no judgment. But as soon we'll see in the weeks ahead, Jesus is coming again. To judge the living and the dead. And now is the time to ready ourselves for that day. As Peter will say, don't count the delay of the Lord, the, the, pay, you know, the slowness of the Lord's coming as something that is bad. But rather see it as something that is good because God is being patient with you that you might repent of your sins and trust in Him. The Lord is coming again to judge. And therefore, personal holiness is essential to standing, standing firm on the day of judgment. This is this we want to think about this morning in 2 Peter, in chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. If you don't have your Bible this morning, I encourage you to grab one of those pew Bibles in front of you and turn to page 1019. And we're going to begin at the second half of verse 10. Bold and willful is where we'll begin. Bold and willful, they, that is the false teachers, do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in power, might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. 
Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. What is it that Peter is after in these words? A lot to be said, but we could summarize it in this way. The lies of the false teachers must be exposed and their teaching must be rejected because they will lead others astray. The false teachers' lies must be exposed. And as Christians, we must see it as a responsibility to expose the error of false teachers. We must be aware of false teaching, but but work to understand where they have gone astray, lest we too be led astray. We must work to protect brothers and sisters in Christ from the error of false teaching, lest they be driven away into slavery of sin and corruption. So in this passage, Peter lays out for us really two points. So in verses 10 through 16 and verses 17 through 22, uh, really Paul, or excuse me, Peter just sort of closes the book, if you will, on these false teachers. He, he sort of slams the book on them and says, it's enough. These false teachers will be condemned for, by God for two reasons. First, their sin, and secondly, their impact on others. And so we're going to consider it in two ways this morning. We're going to consider lying preachers and their sins exposed, and then secondly, consider lying preachers and their impact on others. Lying preachers and their sins exposed, and lying preachers and their impact on others. And Peter writes here in this passage, in verses 10 through 16, really three main sins of these false teachers. He seeks to expose uh, really the heart of, of their sinfulness so that we could see it, so that the congregation could see it, but to help us recognize where often false teachers go astray. In other words, we could say it this way, that these false teachers are not any different than the false teachers that we will face in our day and age. That is, that the enemy does not have new tricks, but rather plays the same games over and over again. While there are more than these three, these three seem to be the most prominent among false teachers throughout church history, and, as we'll see, throughout the history of God's people. Three sins. Number one, their, their sin of arrogance. 
In verses 10 through 13, Paul or Peter points out their sin of arrogance. Apparently, they had an issue with angels. Um, Peter tells us that they were blaspheming angels. They were complaining about angels. Perhaps their blasphemy was that they did not believe in angels. They did not believe that angels were messengers of God. And that goes along, I think, with their understanding of the lack of God's judgment. You see, in the Old Testament, oftentimes it was the angels that would be the ones who would be sent out to exact God's judgment upon people. We know that from the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. In that story that Peter referred to last week, we know that the angels were sent to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so perhaps these false teachers were arrogantly saying that they had more power over angels or that angels did not exist at all. And so Peter writes and says that they're bold and willful. They don't even tremble at holy beings. They don't even, aren't even concerned about those kind of holy people. They go on and you, as he writes in verse 11, he says, listen, uh, these angels actually have things that they could bring against them, but they don't. And then in verse 12, he highlights for us a picture of really who these people are. These false teachers are no other than animals who are created to die. Like an irrational animal, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming, arrogant, if you will, about matters they do not even know. At the height of their arrogance was a lack of knowledge. And friends, that often is the tactic of false teachers. They often get at our seeming lack of knowledge. Many times when you will hear a false teacher, they will talk about all of this knowledge that they have. All of this education that they have. They will wow you with their rhetoric. They will wow you with their smooth speech. They will sound as if everything that comes from their lips is true and trustworthy. But really in truth, if we were to slow down for a moment and listen to them, none of what they say is true. It's spurred on from an arrogant heart, a heart who thinks it knows but does not know. And so Peter writes to expose this sort of arrogant heart of the false teachers. But more than that, we see their sin of sensuality. In verse 13 and 16 through 16, we see at the heart of some of their problems was their sensuality. In verse 13, Peter writes, They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. In other words, they're not afraid of their sin. They don't have a problem with living a licentious life. They don't hide in the cover of darkness. The Bible often portrays sinners as hiding in darkness. That is, that's where most people sin, is in the darkness. I can remember as a, as a young child, my grandmother always giving me a hard time when I was out late uh, because she would say, listen, nothing good happens after dark. 
uh, only bad things happen. And, and maybe you've said that to your children or grandchildren before. Uh, and it's true, often the case, uh, that, that trouble has happened, it happens at night. And, and this is what the, the apostle is sort of pointing to. He says, listen, they're not afraid to walk in the daytime in their sensuality. In fact, they find it something, a kind of badge of honor, a freedom, if you will. Their licentiousness, their sensuality was something they were proud of, not something they were hiding from others. Perhaps we see that in our own day and age. And in a moment I'll point out one case that happened this week where one of our own, where one of our own, cares more about the powers of this world than about calling out sin for sin. Brothers and sisters, false teachers love sensuality. They love sin more than they love you. And what we see here is it really is pointing back to verse 2 when he says, and many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. You see, so often these false teachers apparently were drawing away people into sensuality. They were hitting people right where people's hearts were the weakest. This is why the Word of Faith movement has swept across North America. And why the prosperity gospel is popular not among the wealthy of the world, but against the poorest. They're no different than the government in po- you know, bringing in lottery. It's all a game to get the poorest and to exploit their poverty. And that's what false teachers in our own day and age are doing. Drawing people out with this sort of love for money. Saying that you can be wealthy, that you can be healthy through money, through material possessions. But brothers and sisters, the Bible is so clear. Material prosperity Physical health is not a good indicator of God's blessing upon your life. If you doubt those things, read the book of Job. And slowly read through that book. And you will find that man's prosperity was not in his material wealth. But in the fact he knew the Lord. And the Lord knew him. Their sin of sensuality was drawing people away. They were luring out those, as we'll see in a moment, by their sensuality. They were reveling in their own deception. And we'll see their goal was to entice unsteady souls. Verse 14, he says, they had eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They had a hunger for sin. A desire to sin. Brothers and sisters, we must, see, we must see these true motives and see them for how they are. But more than that, we see a third sin in verse 14. A sin of greed. They have hearts trained in greed. They were trained in greed. That was who they were. They lived for material wealth. They wanted their money. That's all they desired is more money. And greed not only comes in the form of money, but also in popularity. 
And there's this desire to be popular, to be hip, to be in, to be cool, to be accepted. This greed to be popular among those in the world, to get, you know, book sales and all the rest that comes, notoriety from the media. But in order to get those things, so often we must sell out. We must forsake the way of righteousness. And this is what then Peter says, they forsake the way, the way of righteousness. And they have gone astray. Peter is clear that these teachers are not Christians. And they do not preach the Christian gospel. This is similar to what Paul writes to the, to the church in Galatia when he says, if someone else shows up to this church and preaches any other gospel, if an angel from heaven shows up, or if I come back to this church and I preach any gospel other than the gospel I deliver to you, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Let him be excommunicated from the life of this congregation. In other words, don't listen to a word he says. This is what Jude alludes to in that passage that Jude writes to encourage the saints. Beloved, I urge you and eager write to you about a common salvation I have found necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You see, the gospel does not change. The Bible does not change. People change. And people try to change the Bible. People try to distort and twist what we have held to be true for 2,000 years. There will be... And there always will be false teachers who seek to lead God's people astray. And we see that they have gone astray. That they have gone their own way. The way of Balaam. And Peter uses this illustration of Balaam from the Old Testament. As the Israelites were making their way out of Egypt. As they were wandering in the wilderness. A false prophet by the name of Balaam came. And began to convince the Israelite people to go a different way. A way that would have been safer for them. A way that would have relied more on their own strength than that of God. But God had revealed to Moses that they were to go a different way. They were to go a certain way. But Balaam came and tried to draw them away. And God in His miraculous power calls a donkey... To prophesy the truth. Where Balaam wanted to speak lies, a donkey spoke the truth. Well, this is similar to Jesus in that familiar passage in the triumphal entry when he's going into Israel. And people begin to complain about his disciples crying out, Hosanna, giving praises to him. And what does Jesus say? He says, listen, if they weren't praising me, the rocks would cry out like rocks. Inanimate objects would begin to open their mouths and begin to praise me. God uses any means to bring about His Word. Because He knows it is the truth of His Word that will bring people to faith in Him. This is what Jude, and I'm using Jude because Peter seemed to use Jude in this passage. He seems to just sort of follow Jude a bit, use some of his same ideas. Perhaps they were close. Perhaps Peter was aware of Jude in his writings. Or perhaps Jude was aware of Peter in his writings. 
In Jude, he writes in, in verse 8, Yet in a like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not pronounce, presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all the day they do not, of what they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they are, like unreasonable, unreasonable animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of the gain for Balaam's heir and perish in Korah's rebellion. These men were leading God's people astray. Just as God's people were tempted to be led astray in the wilderness, so God's people will always be tempted to be led astray. Peter warns us and warns me of the dangers of false teaching. We must not think that false teaching is a problem that only exists in liberal denominations. We must not think that, that false teaching is just something that you know the mainline Protestant denominations who have drifted into theological liberalism, that's their problem, not our problem. Friends, even in our own denomination, we have seen the slow and steady drift toward pragmatism and moral relativism. We have seen even among evangelicals in America today, those who are of other denominations, who claim the name evangelical, a drift into moral relativism, which means that it doesn't matter how you live. You can live however you want. You can do whatever feels right to you. And friends, we saw this sadly played out this week from a prominent pastor in our own denomination who was unwilling to stand up against sin and call out sin for what it is. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to make clear for you today that Dr. Jeffries does not speak for me or for our congregation that sin is sin and adultery is sin. That the President of the United States has, has done really good things. Things that can be applauded for. But we should never applaud sin. We should never look past sin. We should never think that sin is okay. And for us to just say, you know what? What we care more about is a President in White House than holiness. And as God's people, we should care more about holiness. About godliness among us. Than whether or not our, our man is in Washington. Because what matters most to us is our king is in heaven. And he reigns victorious. Brothers and sisters, there is coming a day when we will be drawn away into what is most convenient. What will get the most applause? What will get the most votes? What will draw the biggest crowd? And we must not be drawn away into moral pragmatism. Thinking that whatever works is what we need to do. Rather, we need to say, what does the Bible say we should do? What does the Bible say a church is? What does the Bible say a Christian is and is not? Brothers and sisters, let us take our cues from the Word of God and not the Word of men. And now I'll poke at you for just a moment. Pragmatism often creeps into our own hearts when we say we've always done it that way. Friends, that's pragmatism. 
Just because we've always done it that way doesn't mean that that way was the right way or the biblical way. It may have been the right way. It may be the biblical way. It may be the way we should be going. But just because it's something we've always done or worse, something that works, doesn't mean it's right. We have seen over the last few decades that it is easy to draw a crowd of people when all you do is appeal to human nature and the human desires, the the words that people want to hear. When we tickle ears, brothers and sisters, you can guarantee a crowd will be drawn. The world does that every week. Through sporting events and pop culture, people go to hear the things and see the things they want to hear. But in God's, among God's people, We gather to hear the word of God, to hear from him, to take our cues from him, to follow him. And so, Christians, we must be warned of false teachers among us by exposing their sin and reminding ourselves of their future destruction. God does not play around with false teaching. Whether it come from my own lips or yours, God will condemn the unrighteous and ungodly. Secondly, we see in verses 17 through 22, lying preachers and their impact on others. Lying preachers and their impact on others. We see in verse 17, their deception described. They are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Waterless springs. We don't depend on that much. When we go to a faucet, we open a faucet and we get water out of it. Uh, But for those that live in nomadic cultures where you must travel to a spring or to a well to go gather water, they they had the appearance of hope. There was this hopefulness, this, this longingness about them that in the distance we could see the hope of water. There they are, a spring. And as you draw near to the spring, it's waterless. It promises life, but rather gives death. They are storms, or excuse me, mist driven by a storm. They have a a fleeting nature about them. They're here today and gone tomorrow. When the hard times come, when difficulty comes, when the storms of life come, false teachers are driven away. And this is how they get people. This is how they bait people. This is how they draw people in. They promise them life and offer them death. They promise them joy and happiness. They romance the idea of the Christian life. It's easy to follow Jesus. Jesus will give you everything you ever wanted. Anything you desire. He's like a genie. You just rub him the right way. You do the right things. And he will do it for you. Pray the right prayers. Do the right deeds. And God will come through. This is what Christian Smith, in his study on the moral deism of our culture. Moral therapeutic deism. is how Christian Smith sort of arrives at much of conservative evangelical world. Moral. We think that it's just about doing right and wrong and doing good things and bad things. Relativism, again, as I pointed out, just 
It's therapeutic in the sense that God is, is really about my own therapy, making myself feel better about myself and my circumstances and my situation. And finally, deism. God is not concerned about the day-to-day of my life. He's kind of like Santa Claus. He just comes around once a year and gives me what I want. This is what many believe and how they practice. God is like a magic pill that will fix my problems. He's like Dr. Phil, if you will. If I just follow his sage and wise teachings, then everything will work out in my life. I won't have trouble. Friends, that is not true. As Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 23, a passage we've been studying the last few weeks in, in our Wednesday night Bible studies. So often false teachers, they, they give you things, they give you product, they give you teaching that, that seeks to promote holiness, but are never able to stop the indulgences of the flesh. And so they promised them joy, they promised them life, they promised them happiness, but rather they were delivered them to death. And so then we see in verses 18 through 19, their plan detailed. This was how they went about it. This is what they did. We saw in the first section their motives, their sin, what motivated them. Here we just sort of see their plan, what they're doing, what they did. Verse 18, for speaking loud boasts of folly. They had an assertive confidence about them, smooth speech. And as I pointed out last week, looks, there, there are false teachers on the television that you just can't help but watch. They are gifted speakers. They are gifted communicators. They will win you with their words and their eloquence and their confident assertions. But all the while, they're speaking lies. They speak loud boasts of folly. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. They appeal to the sinful desires of our own hearts. And they offer the pathway to true freedom. This is their their plan. This is their design. This is what they hope to do. Be confident. Get you where you're weak. Where your heart is the weakest. Where your sin is most prevalent. And then offer you a pathway to true freedom. And as we see in verse 19, is no freedom at all. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whoever overcomes a person, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. This is similar to our own, our master's teaching. We can only have one master. While others serve one and hate the other, or serve the other and hate one. And as he says, God, as God says, we cannot serve God and money in the sense that we cannot have two masters in our life. And this is what Peter says. They, they, they were desiring to be masters over the people, but they themselves were slaves themselves to their own insatiable sin. And brothers and sisters, that's true of them and true of us. That so often we are driven by our own sinfulness. And the Bible tells us that sin is living life our own way rather than God's way. Throughout this passage, Peter alludes to this teaching about following the way of righteousness or the way of unrighteousness. In life, there are really just two ways to live. 
You can either follow God's way and have eternal life, or you can seek your own way and have death. Those are really the only two options you have. There's no middle road. There's no riding any fences. There's none of those things. There was only two ways. And the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve in their sin chose to live their own way rather than God's way. And because of their rebellion, sin entered the world. And every man and every woman is guilty of sin. Every man and woman is guilty of living life our own way rather than God's way. But God said His Son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, who was perfect in righteousness, who went God's way, who lived a perfect life of righteousness, where, where we go astray, He followed. Where we give up, He persevered. Where we're faithless, He was faithful. And He died a perfect death for our sins. The death we deserved for our corruption, for our sinfulness, for our wicked desires. The man Jesus Christ, the God-man, died on the cross for our sin. So that all those who would repent of their sins and believe in Him would have eternal life. And He was raised again on the third day to vindicate, to prove, to demonstrate victory over sin and death. And to open a new way of righteousness. And all those who would follow Him, all those that would go the narrow way, would enter eternal life. Will you enter that way today? Will you stop living your own way and go God's new way? Stop living your life of sin, being driven away by false teaching, by false ideas about holiness and godliness. And will you follow Christ? The warnings that, that Paul gives that we heard Nathan read earlier are so true today and for our own hearts. Judgment is coming, Paul says. This is why he warns Peter, or why he warns Timothy, excuse me, Paul warns Timothy. He says, listen, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. In light of the judgment of God, preach Christ. In light of the coming judgment of God, preach Jesus. Because that's the only thing that's going to give you the confidence to stand. That's the only thing that's going to give you the assurance to stand before the throne of God above. Preach the word, he says. Preach the word because there is a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching. That is healthy teaching. That is biblical teaching but will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Brothers and sisters, that was true in the first century and it is true in the 21st century. We are in danger of being driven away. But we see in this passage that their true nature is revealed. That though they once followed the way of righteousness, they have gone astray. And they have demonstrated that they really never truly believed. Very quickly, again, I will point out verses 20 and 20 through 21. I pointed it out two weeks ago, but I'll point it out again. Well, what can we make of this? They, they seem to be Christians, but they fell away. Is this, is this teaching us that you can lose your salvation. No. What this is teaching us is that there are a lot of fakes out there who claim to be Christians, who claim to be Christian teachers, 
but are not Christians at all. And the proof of that is they had not endured to the end. The Bible says that true saving faith, that true saving knowledge of God is an enduring faith. A faith that endures to the end. John says it this way in 1 John. They went out from us for they were not of us. For if they were of us, they would have stayed with us. They wandered from the truth because they were fakes from the beginning. They were liars from day one. They put on a good show. They, they wore really nice masks, but they did not endure. And there is a great danger and warning for us in this passage. We too are not deceived. And our own hearts are not deceived. And so know that true knowledge saves Again, I'll allude to one other passage, James chapter 1 and verse 19. There James says that even the demons believe that God is one and shudder. In other words, orthodox theology, orthodox doctrine, having all of your ducks doctrinally in a row does not make you a Christian. Because the demons are a, they have, a, they have more PhDs than you in essence. They're smarter than you. They, they're more knowledgeable of God than you. But see, they don't have the saving knowledge of God. They're not trusting in God. Brothers and sisters, the danger is real. False teachers will entice unsteady souls. And so we must guard one another away. We must guard one another and pull the sway of false teachers by teaching the truth. We want to be committed to raising up faithful expositors of God's Word. We want to say, no, all we hope to eat on, the kind of meals that we hope to gather around and eat, are our hearty meals. We don't want fast food. Because we know that if we're eating fast food all the time, and I don't mean literally, so, so I mean figuratively, if we're eating fast food, eating desserts all the time, and not eating the, the meat of Scripture, we become lazy, we become overweight, we become gluttonous, and we can be easily drawn away from the truth. Brothers and sisters, we want to raise up men who will teach God's Word and the whole counsel of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation and apply those truths to us as a congregation. We want to see not merely the responsibility of the pastors to keep faith, and to teach sound doctrine, but also see it as your responsibility as a congregation to learn sound doctrine, to learn about God and His Word. It is your responsibility to be taught, but also to teach, to follow, and to call others to following. We want to commit further to a, a robust historical theology. We, won't, we don't want to read the Bible in isolation from other Christians historically. In other words, if we start coming up with doctrines as a congregation that no one else in the history of Christendom has ever believed, we're wrong. We're wrong. We stand on the shoulders of giants in church history. And so we want to know what has brothers and sisters in the past believed? How have they sought to live faithfully together in a world that is broken? 
brothers and sisters, may we be faithful and be committed to gospel preaching. With the finer points of false teaching may change throughout history. It may change its, its look, its face may look differently. The goal remains the same, to entice unsteady souls. And so we must stand firm in faith through the knowledge of God's word. For the sake of our brothers and sisters, we must stand strong against the wiles of false teaching. We must call out those who are preaching lies, exposing false teaching, and pointing our brothers and sisters back to the truth. As Peter closes the book on false teaching, we must be honest and not afraid to name names. Lest someone be drawn away into error. We must not be away, afraid. And we must consider the lives of men and women. We must consider who we're listening to. And not be so passive. Even as you listen to me week in and week out, do not be passive in your listening, but actively with your Bibles open. Test what you hear. Test what you hear. And stand firm in the faith. May we stand firm in the truth of scriptures. And prepare for that day. When we shall all gather with the saints. From all of eternity. And stand before. The throne of God. Above. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven. It is your eternal word. That we hope to know and to learn. And to follow. Father we pray that a better sermon. Is heard than the one preached. Our desire is that your word is lifted high and that we would follow you. Help us to follow you. Help me to follow you. Help each of these brothers and sisters to follow you for your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen.